Early in the morning of October 22, 1892, still several hours before daylight, Jose Chavez y Chavez led a man, bound and gagged, down a darkened Las Vegas street to a bridge. There, in the midst of a snowstorm, Chavez placed a crude noose around his victim's neck, fixed the other end to a stringer, and heaved. The body was found the next morning, still swaying and frozen stiff. Who was the real Jose Chavez? We're going to take a look at that today. We're going to examine the man's early life, his time as a constable, a regulator, and as a hired assassin. Was Chavez really Navajo? Was his real name Lou Diamond Phillips? I don't know what your vision told you, but mine told me we're headed for blood. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Jose Chavez y Chavez was born in Valencia County, New Mexico in 1851. At least that's according to author and Billy the Kid historian Frederick Nolan. Other sources list Chavez as possibly being from Cebolleta in neighboring Saboya County. The general consensus is that Jose's mother was a Native American, either Apache or Navajo, but contrary to the Young Guns franchise, I'm not sure how much of an influence this had on Jose's upbringing as he does seem to mostly align or identify with his Hispanic roots. For instance, there's no evidence I could find that Chavez ever lived on a reservation or grew up among his mother's people or anything like that. Matter of fact, the real Chavez does not seem to have much in common at all with the otherwise excellent Lou Diamond Phillips' portrayal. And that's not a knock on Mr. Phillips or the film's creator, John Fusco. As you'll soon hear, the young guns Chavez was actually a composite of a few different Lincoln County regulators but I'm getting ahead of myself. There's no doubt that the real Chavez was a killer, through and through. Type of guy that would give Deacon Jim Miller and John Wesley Harden both a run for their money, and definitely not somebody you would want on your bad side. He didn't start out that way, though, at least not on paper. By the age of 18, Chavez had drifted south into Lincoln County, settling down in San Patricio, where he would get married in January of 1871. Skip ahead a few years, and by 1874, the then 23-year-old Jose was elected as a constable there in San Patricio, as well as a justice of the peace. And he would continue to serve the public in some capacity all the way up to and during the Lincoln County War. As a Tunstall McSween ally, Jose was a member of the Hispanic faction of the Regulators. He did fight in the Battle of Lincoln, during which time he was still a lawfully elected constable, and he was one of the holdouts in McSween's house there at the end. Chavez ran out of that burning building right alongside Billy Bonney as they made their getaway through a wall of gunfire. Likewise, Chavez was still riding with the kid less than a month later when they struck the Mescalero Agency and killed Morris Bernstein. But as far as I can tell, he would call it quits around the same time as Doc Scurlock, Charlie Bowdry, and the co-cousins. Unlike many of those others, however, Chavez did not leave the territory. In May of 1879, both he and Billy would testify against Colonel Dudley for his involvement in the death of Alex McSween, and Chavez would join a militia known as the Lincoln County Rifles, or the Lincoln County Mounted Rifles. Now this bunch, from what I understand, was given the job of hunting down some of the worst offenders on both sides of the recent trouble. Their leader was Juan B. Patron, who I briefly mentioned last episode. I did find a roster of the Lincoln County Rifles with Jose Chavez y Chavez listed along with his salary. And other than Patron, who was the captain, it shows that Chavez and a handful of others were getting paid the bulk of the money. So I can only assume he was a very active member. 
So active, in fact, that there's stories of Chavez killing a man there in the Lincoln County Jail, a prisoner by the name of One-Eyed Joe Murphy. Not to be confused with No-Eyes Tom Sullivan or Three-Eyes Mick McDougal, or the very nasty yet relatively unknown, had both of his eyes, but one kind of looked off to the side while the others always had crusty eye boogers in them, Frank Flanagan. Now, I couldn't find out anything else about this One-Eyed Joe incident, but apparently in November of 1880, Chavez would once again run for the office of constable, only to be rejected at the polls. And rumor has it that this alleged murder was the reason. And this certainly would not be the last time that Chavez would kill while wearing a badge. Following the death of Billy the Kid, Chavez drifted on up to Las Vegas, where he may have had a bit of fun with one Robert Newton Ford, a.k.a. that dirty little coward that shot Mr. Howard. Story goes that Ford and Jose engaged in a shooting competition, with Chavez coming out on top. Not one to see an end to the festivities, Jose challenged Ford to another competition, only this one having much higher stakes. A proper duel that would see the two men shooting at each other, as opposed to targets. Bob Ford declined and decided to leave town to avoid any further embarrassment, and to hopefully live another day. Is this story true? I got no idea. This is what smart people refer to as apocryphal, meaning that it's widely repeated yet has doubtful authenticity. Kind of like the story of Jesse James and Billy the Kid being friends. Bob Ford did indeed spend time in Las Vegas, New Mexico, though. He and another member of the James gang, Dick Little, talk about an unfortunate name, operated a saloon there in town, but for how long Ford was involved, I can't say. If you're ever in Las Vegas and you get a chance, visit the old Plaza Hotel where, at one point in time, Dick Little ran the billiards room and the bar. Now, this was in the mid to late 1880s, and as Chavez had done most of his adult life, he once again pinned on a badge, becoming a member of the police department in what was known as Old Town, the original Las Vegas that existed before the railroad. A lot of history there in Las Vegas. It was first laid out on the Santa Fe Trail and was a welcome reprieve for supply trains headed west. And when the railroad made it there in 1879, the town grew into one of the biggest trade centers between San Francisco and Independence, Missouri. This was the for real Wild West. In addition to Jose Chavez and Billy the Kid and Bob Ford, you also had guys like Doc Holliday and Dave Rudabaugh and Wyatt Earp all call the town home, even if just for a brief period. According to historian Ralph Emerson Twitchell, quote, Without exception, there was no town which harbored a more disreputable gang of desperados and outlaws than did Las Vegas. End of quote. And when it comes to disreputable desperados, a man by the name of Vicente Silva certainly topped the list. Respected businessman by day and head of the mafia-like organization known as La Sociedad de Bandidos by night. Now Silva, who according to most sources was born in 1845, became an outlaw at a very early age. The New Mexican headed to Wyoming and worked as a vaquero before running off with another man's wife, allegedly killing and beheading the jealous husband in the process. Through a stroke of good luck, Vicente stumbled upon ore in southern Colorado and ended up raking in quite a bit of dough with a small silver mine. That being the case, when he finally arrived in Las Vegas, Silva did so in style, as a man of means and capital. Vicente opened up a drinking establishment there in the plaza, dubbed the Imperial Saloon, and soon found his way into the good graces of the more genteel townsfolk. The Imperial quickly became one of the more popular places in town, packed plump full of cowboys, cattle buyers, and sheep herders on most any given night. However, when the cattle and wool business began declining in 1887, so did Silva's steady income. 
Already accustomed to a somewhat extravagant lifestyle, Vicente simply returned to the bandit ways of his youth, just in a more organized fashion. His band of thieves and killers, using the saloon as a headquarters, terrorized New Mexico and southern Colorado for around five years without so much as anybody raising an eyebrow at Silva. Not only was he very generous and handed out donations to churches and charities, but the gangster even offered up his services to help put an end to the rampant crime. Dude just had everybody bamboozled. And Silva really did run a tight ship. This was no sloppy band of outlaws. Vicente held court, literally, there at the Imperial as his men kept him abreast of their various endeavors. Hell, the gang even had an official treasurer and a general manager, sort of like your modern-day motorcycle clubs. But you know what they say, right? There ain't no damn honor among thieves. Using his ill-gotten profits, Vicente purchased a ranch about 30 miles north of Vegas that his gang would occasionally use as a temporary holding place for stolen livestock. Well, sure enough, one of his men, Patricio Mays, was tracked to Silva's ranch and caught red-handed, right there in the lots, with stolen horses. He was arrested and, fearing execution, began squealing like a canary. This was in October of 1892, and the authorities let Mays go, allowing him to continue mingling with Vicente and his men, hoping to build more of a case. You know how it'd be on them streets, though. Vicente got word and called a meeting at the Imperial. The entire gang was there, including our very own Jose Chavez y Chavez, and they held a trial, found Mays guilty of being a turncoat, and sentenced him to death. And yeah, the job was given to Chavez and two other crooked Las Vegas policemen. As described in this episode's intro, they led Patricio down the street and lynched him from a bridge over Galinas Creek. Vicente Silva, with the heat now on, fled town and hid out in the hills. The authorities placed $1,000 on his head, and his criminal empire made like Patsy Cline and fell to pieces. Silva's men began fighting among themselves, and more and more of the gang's secret dealings were made public, even after the murder of Patricio Mays. And right or wrong, Vicente began suspecting his own wife and her no-good brother as being the ones leaking information. So he began making plans to take them both out, and who better for the job than the stone-cold Chavez? Now, to Jose's credit, he did hesitate at personally killing a female with his own two hands, particularly one who had been so kind to him in the past, as some sources stated of Silva's wife. Thus, Vicente altered his plan, saying that he'd be the one to do his wife in if only Jose would help dispose of her body, which he agreed to for the measly sum of $10. In February of 1893, somebody shot and killed Vicente's brother-in-law. I don't think anybody knows who the hitter was. And true to his word, Silva took care of his wife himself, stabbing her dozens of times. Just like with the murder of Patricio Mays, Jose Chavez had two other policemen with him as they dug a grave for Mrs. Silva. One can only imagine what that conversation was like. After all, what kind of a man murders his own wife? And what the hell kind of a payment was $10 anyway? I imagine at the very least they figured Vicente was a little too unstable to remain in charge. As such, when their soon-to-be former boss arrived with his wife's lifeless body, Chavez turned on him, robbing Silva of all he had before putting a bullet in the back of the man's head and sending him to the grave alongside his bride. Now, by this time, most of the other banditos had skinned out, or at least they tried to. There were over 20 arrests made in the course of just a few weeks, but Chavez was able to lamb chop it for about a year before Johnny Law caught up with him. He'd ultimately be tried and convicted in the murder of Patricio Mays and, in the summer of 1895, sentenced to death. Apparently, he had one hell of a lawyer who I presume, like me, has read quite a few John Grisham novels, 
as Jose's execution was commuted to just life in prison, which he began serving at the Santa Fe Penitentiary in November of 1897. Turns out Chavez would only do around 15 years, though. After rendering aid to a prison guard during a riot, the old bandit would receive a pardon from then-Governor George Curry and walk out a free man on February 1, 1909. A then-58-year-old Chavez settled down in Santa Fe, and it's there where he spent the rest of his life passing away in bed in 1924 at the age of 72. Worth mentioning that Chavez, in his old age, would claim that it was he who killed Sheriff Brady, and he would even brag about murdering the famous Albert Jennings Fountain and his son, who I mentioned on the previous episode. Now, I don't think either of these claims hold much water, especially seeing as how Jose was in custody at the time of Fountain's death. But I think the point still stands. Chavez could have killed Fountain, and he could have killed his eight-year-old boy, and then gone home and slept like a baby, a very large, brooding, scary-as-hell, cold-blooded baby. I wasn't 100% able to verify this, but I believe Jose now rests at the fittingly named Our Lady of Sorrow Cemetery in Milagro, New Mexico. And that's about all I've got on Jose Chavez y Chavez. Now, if you'll indulge me, just like we did last week, I would like to discuss the fate of some of the other Lincoln County regulators. Even some of the lesser-known guys like John Middleton. You may recall him as being the one who caught a round in the chest from Buckshot Roberts during that gunfight at Blazer's Mill. Middleton would initially survive this wound, only to pass away a few years later from smallpox. Maybe. You know how it goes. Not a lot of information and blah, 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 blah. There is another John Middleton who was cousins with Bell Starr, and sometimes they get mixed up, but it does not appear they are the same person. Found another theory stating that Middleton had drowned in a river, but as there is a newspaper article reporting on the outlaw's death from smallpox, as well as a written deathbed confession, I am going to go ahead and state that it was the pox that did him in. By the way, his real name was Jesse Ward Dancer. Whichever way it shook out, I think it's safe to say that this particular regulator would not live to see old age. And neither would his brother-in-arms, Ab Saunders. Ab was pretty badly wounded as well, in his leg, during the same ambush that saw Frank McDab killed. And although Saunders would somewhat recover and move to Colorado with the co-cousins, that leg wound of his just kept dogging him. So much so that he would make a trip all the way to San Francisco seeking medical attention, but sadly die while on the operating table in February of 1883, at just 31 years of age. Eugenio Salazar was much more fortunate. Despite being shot twice during the Battle of Lincoln, Salazar would live all the way to 1936. Now in the Billy the Kid series, I mentioned that Eugenio was just 15 years old during that battle, but that may not be accurate. If I'm not mistaken, his descendants claim he was born in 1858, which would have made him even older than Billy Bonnie at the time. Far as I know, Salazar kept his nose clean following the kid's death, farming in Lincoln County, and raising a family. His original headstone still stands, upon which is inscribed the words, Pal of Billy the Kid. Earlier, I alluded to Lou Diamond Phillips' portrayal of Jose Chavez as being a sort of a composite of several different people one of whom, according to franchise creator John Fusco, was former Lincoln County regulator and Native American Fred Waite, who you would already know about if you subscribe to my newsletter. Hint, hint. Link in the show notes to the article I published on Waite back in early March. Now, Fred was a pretty interesting candidate for the Hoodow Trail, and even more educated than Doc Skurlock. 
the mixed-race son of a farmer and Chickasaw mother, attended school at the Illinois Industrial University before pursuing his education further in St. Louis, where he graduated from the Mound City Commercial College in 1874. Ah, but adventure was a calling. In 1875, Waite, then around 22 years of age, decided to head west and try his hand at being a cowboy. Originally bound for Colorado, Fred instead found himself in New Mexico working for the legendary John Chisholm, just like everybody else. And it really does seem like everybody worked for John Chisholm, right? There's a good reason for that. His ranching empire was massive, kind of like my penis. They didn't call him the cattle king of New Mexico for nothing. By late 1877, however, Fred secured a job with a Lincoln County newcomer by the name of John Tunstall, and, well, I don't have to tell you how that turned out. But I'm going to anyway. Following Tunstall's murder in February of 1878, Wade would join Billy and the others in a quest for vengeance and consequently become a very active participant in the Lincoln County War. Thankfully, the young outlaw saw the writing on the wall as well as his name printed on a murder indictment and wisely chose to leave New Mexico. Wade moved back to Indian Territory and lived out the rest of his days in peace, raising the family and working as a rancher, federal lawman, and even an elected representative of the Chickasaw Nation. Hell, by the time of Fred's death in September of 1895, he was the attorney general for the entire Chickasaw tribe. If only he could have convinced his pal Billy to join him. Remember Robert Weidenman, employee of John Tunstall and deputy U.S. Marshal? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> this poor bastard. Just from what little I've read about him, he does not appear to be very popular. Described by Robert Utley as a pompous blusterer and a busybody, nevertheless, Weidenman was a friend of John Tunstall. He was present when the Englishman was murdered, and he was a Lincoln County regulator. Weidenman would testify against Jesse Evans in 1878, and then, just like Fred Waite, promptly get the hell out of New Mexico altogether. Rob spent some time in London, England, paying his respects to the Tunstall family, before moving to New York and getting involved in politics. Ugh. Weidenman died there in the Empire State in 1930 at the grand old age of 78. Next up, we got Henry Newton Brown. This is a good one. If I had any sense at all, I'd turn Brown's story into its very own episode. Too bad I'm ignorant. An orphan from Missouri, Henry punched cattle prior to the Lincoln County War, worked for John Tunstall, and was an active participant in the hostilities. Just like Fred Waite, Brown helped murder Sheriff Brady, and he was present for the gunfight at Blazer's Mill. However, when what was left of the regulators trailed all them stolen horses over to the Texas Panhandle, Brown decided to stay behind and make Tuscosa his home. He would even become a lawman there, albeit temporarily. Evidently, Henry had a bit of a temper, and he kept getting into fist bites with the townsfolk. As such, he found himself quickly out of a job. He then drifted up through Indian Territory before finally, in 1882, landing another job in law enforcement, this time as the Marshal of Caldwell, Kansas. Now, Caldwell was a rough town, but Henry and another outlaw-turned-lawman, Ben Wheeler, made quick work of it. Brown did such a bang-up job that the grateful citizens gifted him with a fancy engraved Winchester rifle, one which he put to use about a year later when he dispatched a feisty gambler by the name of Newt Royce. Everything was going hunky-dory. Brown even got married to a nice young lady, one with a college education no less, and was lauded by many as one of the most effective lawmen they had ever seen. But I reckon old habits die hard, and sometimes that easy money is just a little too tempting. In the spring of 1884, Henry Newton Brown and Ben Wheeler left Caldwell saying they was headed to the territory to track down a wanted killer. 
Truth was, they were just trotting on up to the town of Medicine Lodge, some 70 miles to the northwest, to rob the damn bank. And it was a total and complete shit show. Two bank employees got killed, and the two lawmen, with another couple of outlaw accomplices they picked up along the way, fled town under a hell of gunfire, completely empty-handed. They weren't able to even steal one damn red cent, and they left two dead people in their wake. Brown and company were pursued and arrested just a few miles outside of town. Once back in Medicine Lodge and behind bars, Henry penned what I imagine was a very awkward-to-write letter to his young bride. Darling wife, I am in jail here. Four of us tried to rob the bank, and one man shot one of the men in the bank. I want you to come see me as soon as you can. I will send you all of my things, and you can sell them, but keep the Winchester. It is hard for me to write this letter, but it was all for you, my sweet wife, and for the love that I have for you. Do not go back on me. If you do, it will kill me. Be true to me as long as you live, and come to see me if you think enough of me. My love is just the same as it always was. Oh, how I did hate to leave you last Sunday evening, but I did not think this would happen. I thought we could take the money and not have any trouble with it, but a man's fondest hopes are sometimes broken with trouble. We would not have been arrested, but one of our horses gave out and we could not leave the man behind. I do not know what to write. Do the best you can with everything. I want you to send me some clothes, sell all the things you don't need, and have your picture taken and sent to me. If a mob does not kill us, we'll come out all right after a while. Maud, I did not shoot anyone, and I didn't want the others to kill anyone. But they did, and that's about all there is to it. Now, my darling wife, goodbye. Signed, H.N. Brown. And uh, Henry may have fibbed there a little, as he is named by many sources as the one who actually killed the bank president, Wiley Payne. What's more, Brown weren't no tenderfoot. He had spent plenty of time in rough territory, and he knew full well that his mention of a mob weren't just idle talk. Sure as shit, they were coming as soon as the sun went down. And you bet your ass that when they did, the prisoners were ready. They had all shimmied out of their shackles, more or less, and as the vigilantes busted in, they made a run for it. It was all for naught, though. As Henry Newton Brown was making his getaway at just 27 years of age, he received both barrels from a shotgun at damn near point-blank range. Wheeler likewise was cut down, but lived long enough to be summarily hung from a nearby elm tree that very night, along with them other two. And as it turned out, Henry's darling wife does not appear to have remembered him fondly. She moved to Indiana, remarried, and years later, when she wrote her biography, barely mentions her first husband, writing simply, quote, Mr. Brown passed away many years ago, end quote. So there you go on Henry Newton Brown. But I can hear you right now. Josh, what about Billy's other compadres, the ones that got arrested with him over at Stinking Springs? You mean Billy Wilson, Tom Pickett, and Dave Rudabaugh? Well, okay, we'll get to them in just a moment, but first, let me ask you a question. You ever find yourself wondering about the quote-unquote rude parts of history? Oh, I think you do. And I think you know what I mean by rude. The Dirty Sexy History Podcast is here to help. Historian Jessica Kell answers all of your burning questions about historical sex, drugs, pornography, birth control, and tons more through true narrative stories and interviews with the most exciting historians around. Whether you're curious as to when condoms were invented, 18th century pornography, or just the spread of syphilis, Jessica has you covered. Skip to the best parts of history with Jessica Kell and the Dirty Sexy History Podcast. Link in the show notes. 
And seriously, I've been listening and Jessica and her guests cover a lot of very intriguing stuff. Even the non-sex related topics like gunpowder and toothpaste and the secret ingredients to Coca-Cola. That's dirty, sexy history wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza is also brought to you by Welcome Back. Now, I'm not going to rehash Dave Rudabaugh's story as I have an entire episode on him. Link in the show notes. But long story short, Rudabaugh was sentenced to hang for the murder of Las Vegas deputy Lino Valdez. And just like everybody else in the Old West, Dave Rudabaugh escaped. How shitty were the jails back in those days? Good lord. I think there was almost an expectation that if you got arrested, no big deal, you could just easily escape. The most commonly accepted story is that Dave fled to Old Mexico, where in February of 1886, he was shot and beheaded. Once again, check out that episode I did on Dave Rudabaugh for all the juicy details. This guy really was like the Forrest Gump of the Old West. He was just involved with everything. But what about Tom Pickett and Billy Wilson? Following their arrest at Stinking Springs, Pickett was released on bail and disappeared into the wind. Wilson would stick around long enough to receive a prison sentence, but would escape after just doing about a year. Or was it seven years? Or did he escape before his sentence even began? As always, the truth is hard to come by, and in the case of Billy Wilson, I didn't really have time to dive headfirst into the man. Uh, no offense to Dave Rudabaugh, at least not as much as I would prefer to. I am hoping to revisit both him and Tom Pickett in the future, as what I did find out was more than enough to pique my curiosity. For instance, there's a possibility that both men returned to Lincoln County, New Mexico, where, in 1884, they allegedly participated in a quadruple murder. Story goes that the two outlaws, along with a couple of other reprobates by the name of Pony Williams and Yank Bill, were on a several-day drunk over in Seven Rivers when they noticed nine Hispanic laborers approaching town on foot. The workers, all of them unarmed, had come to restock up on supplies. At least that was the plan before the intoxicated bandits stepped out of a cantina and opened up fire unprovoked, killing four of the men and sending the rest running for their lives. Wilson, Pickett, and the mother, too, were all charged with murder, and a price was put on their head. 500 per man. Hell, even Pat Garrett was sent in to hunt the murderous dogs down. But as fate would have it, nobody would ever be held accountable. Now, when I first learned of this, my initial thought was, of course not. Think of everybody we've just discussed over the last couple episodes, and how many of them on multiple occasions either eluded capture and conviction altogether, or if they did get locked up, they just simply escaped. As much as I despise mob justice, and I do despise it, I also understand it. Take Henry Newton Brown, for example. The citizens of Caldwell knew that if they did things by the book and brought the corrupt lawman to trial, he'd have a better than even chance of just walking. And if by some strange occurrence he was sentenced to jail or to away at a hangman's noose, he'd escape like everybody else. So the idea of Pickett and Wilson taking part in a heinous murder and never facing justice does not surprise me especially considering that the victims were Hispanic. However, as I dug a little deeper, turns out that this incident may have not occurred at all. The crime, as previously described, was first reported in various newspapers across New Mexico in mid-January of 1884. A week or so later, however, retractions were printed stating that only one man was killed as opposed to four, and not only were Tom Pickett and Billy Wilson innocent, but they weren't even in the damn territory. By the way, Wilson's real name was more than likely David Anderson. At least that's the name he was living under at the time of his death. The Ohio-born Wilson, or Anderson, who also went by the name Doc, or at other times Buffalo Billy, 
appears to have changed his name to Billy Wilson before traveling to New Mexico. And evidence does suggest that he began his criminal career earlier than that up in Kansas with Dave Rudabaugh. Once Wilson escaped from jail following his arrest at Stinkin' Springs, it appears that he went back to using the name David Anderson and just kind of settled down. Got married, had some kids, even became good friends with his old nemesis, Pat Garrett. Indeed, it was Garrett who worked it out so that Wilson got himself a presidential pardon for his role in that counterfeiting operation back in the day. From there, Billy, or David, or whatever the hell his name was, went on to become the sheriff of Terrell County, Texas, as well as sometimes working as a customs inspector. And by all accounts, Sheriff David Anderson was both capable and highly respected. He still held the position of sheriff in the summer of 1918 when he got word of a disturbance at a train depot in nearby Sanderson. Seems that a damn drunk by the name of Ed Valentine had been running amok and scaring the respectable folks. Former outlaw Billy Wilson, now Sheriff Anderson, dutifully arrived to confront the menace and it cost him his life. Valentine scurried into a nearby shed and shot Anderson in the chest. The lawman died within an hour and Ed Valentine was quickly strung up by the taxpaying citizens of Sanderson. Tom Pickett would last a little longer and just like Wilson, Tom pinned on a badge working as a U.S. Deputy Marshal later in life. Unlike Billy, Tom was not a stranger to that particular weight on his chest, having worked on the other side of the fence as a lawman in Las Vegas before transitioning to a life of crime. And whereas Billy Wilson settled in Texas, the Texas-born Pickett chose Arizona as his new home. And I hate to be a broken record here, but there's not a lot of solid information available on Pickett. You know, something I brought up on the Dave Rudabaugh episode that I think applies to nearly everybody we're discussing today. If a man or a lady were looking for a topic to research and write a book on, you could do a hell of a lot worse. I truly believe the information is out there. It's not going to be easy to find. You'll have to travel around to different dusty locales, spend hours upon hours picking through old records and staring down into a microfilm reader. But I think it would be very interesting to see what turns up. A full-length book on Jose Chavez, for instance, would be a big hit, I think. And I also think the same is true for Wilson and Pickett. I don't have time to do it myself, though, or the money. However, if you would like to crowdfund me about 70000 in U.S. dollars, not only will I get started ASAP as possible, but I'll put your damn name in the introduction. That's Josh at WildWestExtra.com. Now, it looks like Tom Pickett may have worked as a lawman for a very short period of time in the town of Golden, New Mexico, before heading west into Arizona and signing on with the Hash Knife Outfit, a.k.a. the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, which for at least a little while was the third largest cattle operation in North America. They also had the reputation, according to one author, of having the thievingest, fightingest bunch of cowboys in the United States. Seemingly to prove this point, Pickett took a bullet in the leg during a scrape in the mid-1880s, but eventually settled down and started tended bar, even got married. Unfortunately, Pickett's wife and child would die during birth, and he then got himself a job driving the stage between Hallbrook and Fort Apache. Tom may have also killed a sassy bandit named Cimarron around this time as well. Pickett returned to Texas in the early 1900s to visit his dying mother, and while he was there, he got arrested on cattle rustling charges stemming from way back in 1879. He pled guilty, paid his fine, I assume he buried his mama, and then headed back to Arizona where he went back to tended bar and sometimes working as a ranch hand. Between 1912 and 1914, Pickett served as a deputy U.S. marshal, and I believe in the early 1920s, he was a deputy sheriff over in Winslow, Arizona. Presumably on the corner, but I can't prove that. 
nor could I confirm that a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford ever slowed down to take a look at him. Tom would end up having his leg amputated, the one he got shot in back in the 1880s, and it was there in Winslow where the man would pass away from nephritis in the year of our Lord, 1934. FYI, I will post a photo of him and most of these other guys in, uh, in my newsletter, wildwestjosh.substack.com, or just go on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that newsletter tab up top. Tom Pickett had a long life, and a tough life, but was it a redeemed life? Did guys like him and Billy Wilson make good by becoming members of law enforcement, or should they have paid for their crimes? What do you think? Hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. Big Jim French, another Lincoln County regulator who took part in the murder of Sheriff Brady and the gunfight at Blazer's Mill. He was also stuck in the Bernie McSween house with Billy the Kid during the Battle of Lincoln and nobody knows a damn thing about him. We don't know where he came from or what happened to him after the war. He was possibly killed shortly thereafter in 1879, or he lived until the 1920s when, according to George Coe, he was shot and killed in Oklahoma. Or maybe, as others believe, French pulled a Butch Cassidy and escaped down to South America. There's another guy that went by the name of Jim Kell French, who was also an outlaw, but they are two different people. As of this recording, I'm not aware of there being any proof one way or another of French's life after the Lincoln County War. Much like Jesse Evans, he simply faded away into history. Speaking of George Coe, both he and his cousin Frank would live very long lives. Following the Lincoln County War, the pair headed up to Colorado, but they would soon return to the land of enchantment. Frank would get married, and although he and his wife would have six children total, it does appear that he still had more than a little fight left in him. There are rumors that Frank lynched a man in 1880, and by 1898, the then 47-year-old Frank Coe definitely shot and killed a man who was trying to date his 16-year-old daughter. He was acquitted of all charges because you don't mess with a man's daughter, and Frank would pass away right there in Lincoln County in September of 1931, just a few weeks shy of his 80th birthday. As for his cousin George, he was indicted for the killing of Buckshot Roberts, but unlike Billy the Kid, he actually received amnesty from Governor Lou Wallace. Coe would marry a lady named Phoebe, and they had eight children, sadly outliving all but two of them. Ugh. Man, between George Coe and Doc Scurlock, I can't even count how many kids they had that died prematurely. Can't tell you how glad I am that we have modern medicine and modern education. Much as we like to think about the good old days, we are truly living in the very best time right now. Okay, back to George Coe. He did live a relatively quiet life once he returned to New Mexico, published a book known as Frontier Fighter, and in November of 1941, at the age of 85, George Coe passed away. The last surviving regulator, so far as I can tell. 1941. Had George lived just a few weeks longer, he would have heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Think about that. Consider the history this man witnessed just in his lifetime. George was born in 1856, before the Civil War. He was punching cattle as a teenager in New Mexico in the early 1870s, when getting killed by an Apache was a very real threat. He got involved in one of the most famous Old West feuds of all time. He rode with the most notorious outlaw of all time. He was around when the Titanic sank. He lived through World War I, the Great Depression, and, had he just held on a little longer, would have witnessed the beginning of World War II. As it were, George Coe lived long enough to see both Roy Rogers and the actor Johnny Mac Brown portray his old pard, Billy the Kid, on the silver screen. 
And just to put a little more perspective on it, because you know just how much I love talking about how this shit really wasn't that long ago, Bob Dylan, who would later go on to act in the movie, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the guy who wrote the soundtrack for that movie, was already alive when George Coe passed away. So was Neil Diamond, Martha Stewart, Bernie Sanders, and Nick Nolte. Now, if I'm not mistaken, everybody I just listed is not only still alive, as of this recording, but still active as far as work-related projects go. And hell, one of them smoked weed with Snoop Dogg, Martha Stewart, and they were all sucking in the air, hearts beating, at the same time as George Coe. That's how close we are to the Old West. And I think that's about all I've got on the various pals and associates of Billy the Kid. There will be a full-length episode coming out soon on Pat Garrett, just not next week. I think we need to give New Mexico a breather, at least for a moment. That being the case, next Wednesday, we'll be discussing somebody who I'm almost certain you've never heard of. I'm not going to give any hints, but I didn't even know about this guy until very recently. And it was also a listener-suggested topic, so please, keep those coming. I have been chided over not discussing Billy the Kid's body count in the recent series on Billy the Kid. Link in the show notes for that series. And honestly, when it comes to Billy's body count, bro, I don't know. Yeah, Paulita Maxwell, for sure. There were several other women there at Fort Sumner. Billy had girls everywhere, though. San Patricio, Las Vegas. I'm sure he had a few in Mesilla. It would be impossible for me to determine the dude's body count. I don't even know my own body. Oh, not that kind of body count. You meant you meant how many people did he kill? Okay. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> well, Billy killed Wendy Cahill in Arizona. That was body number one. He was present when McCloskey and Buck Morton and Frank Baker were killed. But did he pull the trigger? Nobody knows. But let's pretend he did. That would make four. The kid took part in the murder of Sheriff Brady. Did any of his bullets find the sheriff? Once again, nobody knows, but let's assume they did. That makes five. One of Brady's deputies was also killed, but I believe it has been proven that Frank McNabb dropped the hammer on that particular body. Uh, Billy was there for the gunfight at Blazer's Mill but it was Charlie Bowdry's bullet who did Buckshot Robertson, so that doesn't count. I don't know that the kid killed anybody during the Battle of Lincoln, but he was present for the death of Morris Bernstein afterwards. Once again, we know that he did not pull that trigger. We're still at five bodies. Uh, he killed Joe Grant over at Fort Sumner. He possibly killed Jimmy Carlisle, although he denied doing so. Let's go ahead and give him Jimmy, though. That brings us to seven. And then, of course, you've got deputies Bob Ollinger and James Bell. As far as I know, that's it. So, nine bodies. Could the number be higher? Sure. We just don't know about any other killings. Or at least I don't know about any others. If you do, you have a different number? Josh at WildWestExtra.com I have gotten a few comments from people asking me what I think happened to Billy the Kid as far as how he really died. And once again, I have no idea. I do believe he was 100% killed by Pat Garrett and then buried over there at Fort Sumner. Did Billy really step into that dark room with a butcher knife in one hand and a pistol in the other? Uh, I don't know. Did Pat Garrett shoot him in the back or while Billy was unarmed? Was the kid even in Maxwell's room to begin with? I don't know. As far as I'm aware, there are no other credible stories stating otherwise. Just conjecture. Remember, there were a lot of people there at Fort Sumner. I think like 40 or 50 people saw Billy's body. I will say this. Billy the Kid was not immortal nor was he some sort of tactical mastermind. We know for sure that Garrett easily lured Billy into a trap once before at Fort Sumner when Tom O'Folliard was killed. 
and he was nearly successful in pulling the same damn trick a second time shortly thereafter, only Charlie Bowdry talked him out of going into the fort. And then you've got Pat easily sneaking up on and surrounding the kid and company over there at Stinkin' Springs. To me, it is not far-fetched at all to think that Pat got the slip on Billy at Fort Sumner. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that. A lot of people say Billy was too smart, but the fact of the matter is, Billy had gotten captured quite a few times in the past. Now, just for fun, I got to thinking about how Billy's life might have turned out had he not died that night in 1881, and I even asked the listeners over on YouTube. The top consensus seems to be folks believing that had the kid escaped death at the hands of Pat Garrett, that he'd have just settled down and lived a quiet life and lived happily ever after. But not everybody agrees. One commenter, Jake, stated, At the end of the day, Billy killed around 10 people. He is not suddenly just going to hang up his guns and call it a day. It doesn't make sense. He is what he is, and that is someone who is rebellious, irritable, and up for a fight. I see articles and people sympathizing with him, but still, it doesn't make what he did right. I don't think he had to kill James Bell or James Carlyle. I am convinced if someone had come and pick a fight with him about any trivial thing, whatever it was, Billy would have resorted to his gun. We see it now in some people, and we see it then. Most thugs nowadays have been brought up in a similar fashion with their parents abandoning them as a kid. It happens all the time. They go and commit crimes in their teens or adulthood, and we don't feel sorry for them. They get castrated on social media. Why is Billy any different? He had a chance to leave New Mexico when all of his friends left. His demise was always going to catch up with him. He did too much wrong. Yeah, well, Jake, I think you've got a good point. As romantic as we like to make out the kid's life, he was a criminal. And a deadly criminal. Here's another unpopular opinion for you. I think that if Billy were around nowadays, he'd probably be stealing catalytic converters and dealing a little meth on the side. Plymouth Duster, a longtime listener to the podcast, thinks that Billy would have taken Paulita Maxwell with him to Mexico. He goes on to write, But I still feel, given his age and history, he probably would have had a hard time staying out of trouble. Probably would have went back to stealing horses and cattle. Might have ended up doing something like the Cochise County Cowboys driving stolen cattle and horses from Mexico into Arizona, and then stealing cattle and horses in Arizona and taking them to Mexico to sell. Yeah, once again, good point, Plymouth. Then you got Danny chiming in. Same as before, only later rather than sooner. Live by the sword, die by the sword. A simple life of living on a ranch, judging by his early years, he didn't have the patience for that kind of hard life. He wasn't independently wealthy. I don't see it. That's romanticism or wishful thinking. He was a little more clever than Rudaball. Being young and impetuous, look at Danny with that $5 word, impetuous. Being young and impetuous, I really can't see him ending up any other way. Either being shot or hung for a horse thief. Danny, when you're right, you're right. And finally, Alan commented that Billy would have, quote, hosted a semi-successful podcast, end of quote, to which I say, good fucking luck. Now, there are indeed stories of Billy planning on getting married and then heading into Mexico. I believe this is even what George Coe claimed in his book, Frontier Fighter. The problem was Billy just took his leave in a little too slow. Had he been successful, uh, I personally think he would have gone to law enforcement. I mean, so many of them did, right? Billy had the nerve and he had the skill and, let's face it, physically at least, being a sheriff or a marshal is a whole hell of a lot easier than punching cattle. I also do think that he would have eventually reverted back to his old ways, kind of like Henry Newton Brown. Maybe I'm wrong, though. 
Maybe there's an alternative universe out there where Billy the Kid and Jesse James are both deputies working under the highly respected U.S. Marshal Geronimo. And they just ride from town to town on their unicorns, doling out justice and making love to willing maidens. I do have an update from last week's episode on Doc Scurlock. I mentioned Doc's membership to the Theosophical Society, and I read a bit of their mission statement from their website. I also spoke of how Thomas Edison and William Butler Yeats were also members. Well, turns out Hitler was a fan as well. Whoopsie! Obviously, the mention of that society on the Doc Scurlock episode was not an endorsement. I know zero about the group other than what I got from skimming a quick Google search result. So don't go sending nobody no money. Other than me, hey. All right, till next time. Don't go robbing no banks. Don't name your kid Dick Little. Try not to catch the smallpox. And whatever you do, stay the hell away from Frank Coe's daughter. Adios. Stewart.